Welcome to episode 301. Do you have sleep apnea or issues with your sleep? Maybe you actually do sleep all night, but you don't wake up feeling rested. Or possibly you have big energy crashes where you need a nana nap throughout the day. For anyone with sleep issues, this episode is for you. It's part one of a mind-melting episode of the relationship between vitamin D, the sun, and the complete reversal of many different sleep disorders. And we're talking about this with a medical doctor. Yes, a medical doctor that is solving problems with nutrition that medication struggles to solve. This is a fascinating and deep scientific conversation about how your body is designed to work and what you can do to begin changing it. Also, catch part two of this conversation on episode 303. For now, let's dive into part one right here. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome back to another fine episode of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast, where we fill your ears with nothing but the absolute best stuff that is going to make your life a lot better. Look, it's not a guarantee, but let's err on the side of it being a strong likelihood. (laughs) Furthermore, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And it might surprise you that a part of that recovery picture is improving your sleep and your gut health because making good decisions about food and, well, anything is difficult when you haven't slept very well. And I mention that because I'm pretty excited about today's guest because it's not often you have a medical doctor and more specifically a neurologist that builds a career in the way this fantastic woman has. I'd like you to meet Dr. Stasha Gomanak, whom has spent most of her career focused on sleep disorders and how those disorders relate to having a vitamin D deficiency and a disrupted microbiome, something which here in Melbourne is a major problem given our lack of UV exposure during the winter and how little we all get outside. I actually can't wait to get into all of this stuff because I've been researching Stasha and it's just so such incredible information. She also actually wrote two medical hypothesis journal articles with alternative viewpoints and perspectives on the causation of sleep issues and what could actually be going on, dots that were yet to be joined in the medical literature before her contribution. And this led to her developing a recovery method for sleep for those people that have awful sleep called the right sleep method. And I've read some of her medical papers and watched a bunch of her content online, and I'm just totally in awe. So, Stasha, I'm really excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for inviting me. I, I feel the same way about you. Thank you. That's, that means so much because someone you know that's had a full career that I really look up to after getting to know you through online content, to have you say that is like really filling my cup today. So, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, so... Where to begin? There's, there's so much incredible stuff that's in your head. So maybe we can start with how you got into sleep and why, um, and then into the vitamin D and all of that kind of stuff. I, I think the most important thing to know is I was struggling with not knowing. Um, that, that's really important. And I was a neurologist. I took care of lots of different uh, neurologic illnesses. I did not have any sleep fellowship training, which probably turns out to be good because I wasn't brainwashed in any way. Uh, And my journey in this started in the mid 2000s or around 2005, at which time we were still saying that sleep apnea is the only sleep disorder that anybody would pay any attention to and that it was older males. And one of my patients demanded a sleep study and she was a young, fit, healthy woman. 
and she didn't have a fat neck. And she said, look, I have headaches. You've given me these medicines. They haven't worked. I want to sleep study. My husband says I snore. And I said, well, I don't know anything about that. And typical MB behavior. And she said, I don't care whether you do or not. I want to sleep study. So I said, okay. And she turned out to have sleep apnea. But more importantly, she wore this CPAP device, which is as far away from a placebo effect as what it could possibly be. I just couldn't picture how her headaches went away wearing this CPAP device over three or four weeks. And with any other medicine, I would have made up some biochemical reason for this to work. But with the CPAP device, I just couldn't picture how that, how that could be biochemical. And all I was left with was, well, maybe her brain is making chemicals that are fixing her headaches. Like her brain actually knows what her brain is lacking, but not being able to go into deeper phases of sleep because every time she did, she would stop breathing. Just allowing that air blowing up her nose, which is kind of a crazy idea. So it totally shifted the way I thought about sleep. For me, that was, oh, this is another way we could intervene and make people with terrible things like daily headache and horrible migraines and all sorts of things. So I actually started this with an unusual population of mostly young, healthy women, teenagers, kids who had headaches. And then I did a whole bunch of sleep studies. And the sleep studies were atypical for the population that was being studied at the time because most of them did not have sleep apnea. And what I learned, unfortunately, pretty late, like a year into it, was that they still had abnormalities on their sleep study, but those abnormalities were not reported on the front page. They were not on the report. And the abnormalities were that they weren't getting into the proper phases of sleep. And for that group, it was predominantly, they did not get into rapid eye movement sleep. So I had these unusual conversations with the guy who was reading the sleep studies that said, well, your patients have REM-related apnea. And I was like, okay, well, what's that? And he said, well, we get the most paralyzed of all when we're in REM sleep. And I just was like, stopped by that, paralyzed. Like, that's terrifying. We get paralyzed. How is it that we still wake up? Why Why don't we? Oh, they are gasping. I can picture that. But that's really wrong. If we all get paralyzed, there must be some system that's controlling this perfectly so that we all wake up in the morning. That really changed what could be wrong on that sleep test. So there were two aspects to that. One, if you get too paralyzed, you stop breathing. The other was, if you don't get paralyzed enough, then you have these walking movements during the night. And they aren't really big. They don't have to be big movements. They're periodic limb movements of sleep. And those are periodic because they're walking movements. The legs are alternating. No one talks about what that is and why it's there. They, they tell us that we get paralyzed, but they don't they take the next step, which is if I didn't get paralyzed correctly, what would be the outcome? What would it look like during the day? The other thing that's creepy about that whole idea is there are things happening to my body while I'm innocently sleeping in my bed. So I wake up in the morning and my knees hurt or my back hurts. Mm. And no one has addressed the fact that that could mean that the period of time that's assigned to being paralyzed and healing your knees that you walked on all day is been skipped or you were walking during that time. 
That means you were walking all day and then you were walking during the healing phase. And therefore, there are specific parts of your body that are aging faster than the rest of you, which is a weird concept. So there are things about that yeah. when I didn't know really anything about sleep that meant I didn't go the place that most of us go when we're academically trained, which is, oh, we see that. You know, once you're trained and you, oh, periodic limits of sleep means this. If you have no training, then you just kind of puzzle about things and go, well, that's weird. And you look at it as a complete novice. Okay. So I have all these observations. And one of the weird thing was I had eight-year-olds that were doing sleep studies. They'd had their tonsils removed already. All that they were talking about at the time was airway. This kid has sleep apnea, but he also has leg movements. And he's, he's, he's really complaining about his legs hurting in the morning. So that, then I had these sleep studies and then I would go to the literature and I would go, well, who's writing about this? Because I want to know what to do. Because if they don't have apnea, that's bad enough. Let's say they have a half an hour of rapid eye movement sleep. They have every five minutes they wake up, not to being fully awake, just to a lighter phase. But that means you just interrupted something where there was a repair phase. And that person's report says no significant apnea. But really what you had was a half an hour instead of two hours of this really important healing sleep where you're making memories, you're making your mood, you're making all these really important repairs in your body and your brain. It's been totally interrupted and nobody is telling you that. You actually had the top of the list sleep study, but you're not being told there's some. And the reason is nobody has an answer for what to do. So when I, when I asked the pulmonologist, why isn't this on the report? He says, well, I know, uh, it doesn't really have an answer. I was going to say as well in that medical setting, when we start, uh, you know, I worked in a hospital for years when we start saying things like, oh, we see that it, it gets so easily bypassed as like the normal symptomology. That's just kind of a part of it and not given attention. Right. Yes. It's not a very good answer. It doesn't do anything for them. It protects me as the clinician, but it doesn't do anything for the patient. The cool mm -hmm. thing right now is they have, you know, Maddie Lansdowne and they can go online. You know, they can yeah. find me. That's a fascinating thing. That's a huge change in the medical care, medical information, medical connectedness that is so different than even 10 years ago. So at the time, there was no one helping me. It's not that I set out to, you know, solve this. It's completely by accident. Um, and I was very curious and it was obvious that in the person who had sleep apnea, when you put the CPAP on, they got better, but I had nothing to offer all these other people that had this quote unquote milder form. And the other thing that made things a little bit more obvious towards the end of this was the population was relatively healthy and young and the, and lots of them had headaches. So there was a, a, a sort of a uniformity. I was also then doing anybody with epilepsy or tremor or Parkinson's. I started to do sleep studies on anybody that would let me, but there was a uniformity to the fact that these women were not getting into REM sleep and not sustaining REM sleep. That turns out to be important when we finally figure out what's going on towards the end. But at the beginning, it was enough to say, well, that can't be the airway. That's got to be the brain. So it's my responsibility. I'm the one that's supposed to know how these sleep switches work. And then I go to the anatomy 
studies. And it turns out that there are a couple of guys who write a chapter in one of our major neurochemistry or actually our neurobiology major textbook called Candell and Schwartz back in the year 2000, that edition, who say, hey, this nucleus right here in the brainstem, when this screws up, it could actually cause sleep apnea and periodic limb movements to sleep. This was way before I thought of it that way, but it made me feel better just to think, oh, somebody who spent their life looking at this area of the brainstem had the same idea. So I'm puzzling over this. I'm, I'm asking a lot of patients now unusual questions. Like my first training was to not ask about sleep, which many physicians are still in that place because this, they're scared by the idea that if they ask you about your sleep and you say, well, I don't sleep at all, I have terrible insomnia, then they have to go down the sleeping pill route. And, and especially in Australia, even worse than here, they're not willing to give out sleeping pills. And, and the physicians feel like they're in a corner. They want to help or they wouldn't still be doing that. So that means the person with insomnia is put in this very difficult position. They aren't coming in trying to look, look for drugs. They're just saying, you asked me, and now I'll tell you, I don't sleep. And now that we have, most of us anyway, recognize that sleep is such an important part of healing, it makes not only the patient, but the physician uncomfortable. So then I begin to ask more and more and more questions about their sleep. Like, and how do you feel in the morning? How's it different than any afternoon? And uh, how's your pooping? Are you pooping okay? And I start to make some generalized comments, or at least I'm acquiring data that says these things come in a certain pattern. And then uh, because of the partial success with the CPAP and the um, sleeping pills, I, the other thing that's quite obvious is every single person needs a different sleeping pill. That's totally weird. Like if they're all sleeping pills... Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Like, if they're successful, then it means they're mimicking something that the brain is missing because the brain makes all these chemicals that it needs. And we, I can make an obvious you know, comment, like we need 22 chemicals, but it's my belief that we don't even know half of the ones that we missed. So there's yeah. an array of chemicals that are needed and they're probably mostly in ratios. So there is a certain set of ratios. So maybe three of this and two of this and one of this. That means drowsy phase. And then you flip the switch and that requires this and this to be there. Those ratios of neurotransmitters, if you happen to find a drug that's mimicking the one that the brain is missing the most this moment, then the brain goes, yeah, Maddie, wow, this is awesome. And it, you sleep for like three nights and then it doesn't work. And the brain gets really yeah. picky. And he goes, well, I have enough that one. What about this other one? Okay. That was really frustrating for everyone that's tried to use sleeping pills. But it also tells you something about the fact that you're really never looking for just one thing. When it starts to fail, there are an array of things that aren't in the right ratios to one another. That was helpful for later. So then what happened was one of my young, healthy females who had daily headache had a terrible sleep study with no deep sleep at all. She slept fine. She slept for 10 hours every night. I have a sleep study. She's asleep for 10 hours, but she's in light sleep the entire time. She never is able to transition into these deeper phases of sleep. And with that sitting in front of me, while she's telling me she's tired, it changes the whole dialogue because I'm looking at this going, this is terrible. She's going to be in the hospital in a, 
10 years having a stroke because she's aging and she is completely invisible to medical help because if you just asked her, she'd say, I sleep fine. Yes, I am tired. Okay. So I actually ended up doing a B12 level in her because I was desperate. I did a thyroid and a B12. Her B12 was extremely low, low enough that it was out actually outside of the normal range. But because I was so desperate and because this pattern on the sleep study was so peculiar and such a deranged pattern. So by the time your brain gets to the point where it can't even get into any deep sleep, things have been bad for a long time because this healing phase is what keeps us developing as children. You have to sleep normally to grow. All of this is the core of how we are existing on this planet. And hers is completely kaput. So I'm looking at this thinking these little cells, and because I'm studying these weird nerdy articles, because no one else is giving me any sort of clinical advice, I'm reading about these cells. And so I'm thinking of sleep as a single cell, which is very peculiar. And then B12 deficiency in a single cell, instead of looking at the book, you know, so I walk out of my office and I go to Google, of course, and I type in the symptoms of B12 deficiency instead of the neurology textbook, which is what I would have done in the past. And it says chronic fatigue and daily headache, which is really embarrassing because I have all these patients with daily headache and I've never done a B12 in any of them. So I realize also that the neurology literature is is actually manipulated to some extent, not purposefully, but when you have not looked through the lens of vitamins are my responsibility. So by the time I'm doing this, we haven't been looking at vitamins for 20 years. Medicine just decided vitamins were for lesser humans, uh, nutritionists, dietitians, you know, we're the big dogs and we don't have to trouble ourselves with that anymore. So we stopped thinking about it and therefore we don't look at whether or not all the headache sufferers have B12 deficiency. And it turns out that I'm willing then, because I'm desperate, to say, okay, let's do some B12 shots and see what happens. And right away, you know, everybody that gets a B12 shot and has got a low B12 says, my sleep was better for two nights and then it was terrible for 28. Well, that was several people in a row. So yes, it's not a, it's not a controlled prospective trial. But when same thing is told to you by several patients over and over, and already there's a literature that connects B12 to sleep. The odd thing is I still can't find the biochemical pathway that attaches B12 to which neurotransmitter that is. But they're very clear about it. When they're B12 deficient, if you ask, most of the time they'll say, it gives me energy. But if you ask about their sleep, they'll say, oh yeah, I sleep better. The problem is it's not the only thing that's low. So one, I find this B12, I have nothing else to give, so I start sending them off for B12 shots. And then it also it turns out that from out, of, out of the literature from Europe in the 90s, there was already a whole bunch of stuff that said uh, oral B12 dose of 1,000 micrograms works much better. And you really don't have to give shots. So we start giving pills. And one of the really important things at the very beginning of this is You can't get better sleep if you are sloppy with this. You have to try to find what your brain wants. If you're thinking of it as the raw materials that my healing, incredible, 
well-formed, know everything, sleep switches need to make me better every single night, I better supply those and not be sloppy yeah. about them. Everybody's sloppy with vitamins. It's the weirdest thing. I was sloppy with them. They put them in the kitchen. Well, in the I bathroom. would say medication as well, right? The last data, which was a few years ago now that I looked at, compliance on average was 55% of the time. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yep. So really important. The hardest thing that I ever had to do was to get people to take, once we find out which vitamins the brain is lacking. So first, there's a realization that one, sleep disorders are everywhere. Two, it might be a deficiency state. This would be a miracle. We could give back something that would make people better. Three, it turns out not to be really B12 alone. So what over a period of time between September and December of 2009, I actually did Ds and B12s on everybody in my practice who had a sleep study, who still wasn't sleeping well. They all have low vitamin D because what happened about three weeks into it was the B12 was kind of low in some of them, but not consistent. And then someone else says, oh, my vitamin D was low. And I say, oh, I don't know anything about that, but I'm drawing blood anyway. And I throw it in pretty much by just by accident. But everybody's D is low. Now, if you were to do that right now, the whole response to that, especially just perhaps in COVID or after would be, oh, well, everybody's D is low. This is what it's like in Canada. Yeah. Everybody's leaving is low. So why do you yeah, care? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was kind of my response. One, I had no idea what D was doing. I thought it was a bone right. I mean, like everyone else. And, but then I said, well, this is kind of peculiar because this is in the end of our summer. That means everybody's D is low at the end of summer. Well, yeah. that can't be right. And then two guys walk in the week before Christmas break and say, hey, you know what? My CPAP did not cure my headaches like you promised, but that D you told me to start taking, about three weeks later, I start to sleep a little bit better. So they said it in a way that made sense to me. I took mm -hmm. vitamin D and my sleep problem went away. Well, no, it took about three weeks. My sleep got better and then my headaches went away. So the timing of it made sense. They also turned out to have D levels that were slightly higher than the really sick, usually younger women, okay? 
So at that point, I thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. But two guys have told me exactly the same thing in the same week, and everybody's D is low. So then I go to PubMed and do a literature search. That's the other thing that's different here is in the past, it would have taken me six months to do the sort of search I can do in an instant now. So yeah. I put in the search term sleep and vitamin D, nothing comes up, zero. And then I put in the brain and vitamin D and up pops this guy who has spent 30 years of his life writing about vitamin D, building a conceptual framework as to how you should look at it. And right off the bat, he's got an article that studied this particular nucleus in the brainstem that no one knows about. It's a totally nerdy thing, this nucleus pontus reticularis oralis caudalis. No one knows about that. And he's got an article where he's actually studied that, that set of cells and shown that there are vitamin D receptors on it. If he didn't say something really intelligent afterwards, I would have just been, oh, well, that's weird. No. The thing he says is this runs hibernation. He doesn't quite connect the sleep aspect, but he connects the fact that it's about fertility, metabolism, and dormancy. We become dormant in the winter. That's how we hibernate. Therefore, D bosses thyroid hormones. So the, all of the energy requirements go down. So all of us have been sort of instructed since little kids. Bears hibernate. What do they do? They go on the ground and they and they sleep and they have their babies there and they nurse their babies. Well, one, they don't get out of that hole and eat because there's no food. Well, first off, there, I mean, that makes you think of all sorts of unusual things. All right. We don't do that as humans, yet we are mammals just like those bears. So that means he, Walter Stump has already put this together as this is the hibernation hormone. Therefore, it's going to affect behavior. It affects behaviors of animals to increase their survival. The way we were able to move to the far north and far south was that we were able to change our behaviors. We were able to put on weight. Oh, how do we put on weight? So it turns out Walter had this idea that D had receptors all through the GI tract. We're going to jump to this later, but ultimately D does not directly manage your weight gain, but D manages the microbiome. That means, oh, there's an intermediary, and now we know a surprising amount about the microbiome of the bear because people run around and pick up bear poop and they study the microbiome over the spring, summer, fall. That means that our D level switches our population of the microbiome and that the microbiome is the intermediary that tells us we're still hungry after we've just eaten two full dinners. Our microbiome was set up that way. We were in the dormant. There, isn't any, there aren't any calories around. We were in this phase where we were made exceptionally hungry because if you're starving to death at the end of the winter, and you can crawl out of your little hole and grab that squirrel and you know eat a live squirrel, you survive. I mean, it's gross, but people were surviving <laughs> under circumstances where they had not eaten for 
two months. Okay. So, I've, got, I've got a question about that because so you meant you're obviously talking about hibernation. So there's one thing that comes to mind, which is the idea of going into hibernation at a time when we lived outside would have meant that we went into hibernation with a good amount of vitamin D in the system because we lived outside in the, the, the months before. Whereas now we go into hibernation already D deficient, right? But the other thing you mentioned is migration. So is it is there populations around the world which hibernated for the winter and other populations which yes. followed the sun? Like in Australia, you can yes. you know go from Melbourne to Brisbane and yes. stay stay in, under the sun. Yeah, that's much more obvious in the U.S. than it is in Australia. But we mm-hmm. have you know Canadian geese that always go towards Mexico in the fall, they migrate towards the equator, so do the fish. So animals that can move long distances follow the fact that they can't survive. Well, there are two reasons for that. One, they don't have a food source because every all the grain is covered by snow. But the second is the reason why it's worth it to them to fly all that way to Mexico is because they're now getting enough vitamin D. So they're feeding and they're building their vitamin D that means that they are actually able to have more babies and they're able to survive on this planet. So you really had the choice. As you moved away from the equator, you had the choice of hibernating or migrating. Those were the two choices. And right now, the population is down at D levels that are below 30. And in your units, that's below about, it's two and a half times. So it's 75. 75 in your units and below is basically a 90-year-old person. You can picture it as only if when we lived outdoors, like every other animal still does, except our pets, when we lived outdoors, our D would never go that low unless you were put in the Tower of London because you were with the backing the wrong king and you were in there for five or six years or you died there, or you were actually 90 years old And your ability to make D falls off as you get older. So that all of the things that we see in old people, old people disease, their teeth fall out, their hair falls out. They're up walking around in the middle of the night because they can't sleep or they fall asleep talking to you or they have rheumatism and they get these weird diseases like Parkinson's. Those things are moving into populations that are seven, eight, 10 years old. Because we were never meant to have Ds that were that low. So the whole population has moved into. So if you look at a population where they're outside, the D goes down to about 40 and a little bit below 40, they start to sleep longer. And then they go up to 60. And there aren't these big, huge changes. When they do the the D levels and hunter-gatherers in Africa, they find that their levels are in the 40s, high 40s, early, low 50s. The things that our clients or our listeners want to know is what's the ideal, okay? That is a, uh, that's an obvious question and it's a good question, but it's a different question than what was the D level that you, and so Walter and I, what happened was I call up this guy, Walter, who's a scientist and luckily he's retired. And I say, hey, I have this clinical observation. You don't know me, but you're writing all this amazing stuff about vitamin D, yet no one else is talking this way. No one's thinking about it in this way. I have just seen that all my patients who have terrible sleep have low D. Has anybody written about that? And he said, no, but that makes perfect sense. It runs hibernation. So the first question was, if these are low levels and they're affecting our ability to sleep normally, 
is there a day level that would bring us back to sleeping better? Very simple question, because I'm a completely naive. I have no idea how complex this is. And I just start asking my patients, okay, are you taking that vitamin D? And the biggest stumbling block is we've been told that there is a specific recommended dose, and that is completely wrong. You cannot recommend a dose to anyone. You can re recommend a starting dose, and then you can say, what was your level? And then what was your level one month after you took this dose? And then you can compare the two, and you can say, okay, that went up. So there are many, many things about using D that are the reason why we're using it wrong is because we've named it a vitamin, and it is absolutely not. And we put vitamin equals recommended dose per person, mm -hmm. as though everyone on the planet has the same recommended dose, which is also incorrect. But more importantly, this is really a hormone. So even lay people know, oh, my aunt was recommended a specific dose of thyroid hormone by her whatever without a blood level. People are going to go, wait, that's not right. Don't they have to measure the blood level? So there's a yeah. lot of confusion about this particular chemical. Now, ultimately, I was pretty easily able just to ask, how's your sleep now? And then do a D level and say, is there a correlation between where the D level is now? And was there a consistent pattern? Yes. As soon as they go over 60, they start to sleep better. That I, Bolter and I published that in 2012. So 60 to 80 is the range for your units. It's 150 to 200. Nobody walks into their doctor's office at 150 to 200, unless my, you know, except my daughter, okay, who's, who's pregnant now and has finally gotten interested. So nobody walks in that way. Therefore, people get freaked out when they see a D level like that. And then the next question still is, what's the ideal D level? Well, that's really not the right question for my patient group. My patient group is failing because they are not sleeping well. There's still the possibility that we have to push the D level higher than what was normal. Like those hunter-gatherers, if their D has never been in the toilet, they've never developed a sleep disorder, they may yeah. do just fine between 40 and 60. And I have a question about those hunter-gatherers and going back to sort of in the earlier part of the conversation where you were talking about the fact that, you know, there's many brain chemicals and when it's, it's about balancing those ratios. So my question is when we give a supplement, which is an isolated compound mimicking nature, is there a difference in hitting vitamin D levels at an you know, optimal or ideal for the individual through supplementation versus sun? Yes, that's a very, very good question. Okay, so the first logical question is what, these are simple questions that once you listen to this podcast, you would say, okay, what do I do? What does yeah. it? Well, it's much more complicated than I'm afraid, okay? We can't measure what is your deficiency state. And in actual fact, when you, I'm going to come back to your question in a minute. When you take D, because it's used in almost every cell of the body, it's sucked up by all the cells. That means the part that we see in the blood is really the leftovers. That means I had patients who were taking 15,000 units and their level didn't go up. It was 19 or in your units, like it was 40 and they were taking 15,000 and it didn't go up. And now people have made up all sorts of stories about that because we can't see how profound the deficiency is. All we can see is the blood level. There's a, a piece missing there. The second part is, over time, as you take D, you can get to a place where it's stable. 
So if I have a day level of 60 and I can keep it there for six months and I'm taking 5,000 a day, that kind of means I'm using 5,000 a day. So there's, there's some aspects that are really consistent, but each individual has to get that those pieces of data, okay? Now, your question is a very good one because when every time your, your question is, is there a difference between biohacking with a pill compared to being outdoors? And that is going to be the future of medicine and our conversations because D is just one of many biologic effects of being outdoors. There's a big body of literature about infrared light and how infrared light penetrates our actual body two or three inches and does all sorts of things to our physiology. Medicine has been very slow to get on that bandwagon. Dermatology has been so anti-D that there's this odd mismatch between the scientific literature and what's being currently recommended. So to get to your question, there's a guy named Andrzej Slominski who is from Poland, but is at the University of Alabama. Ironically, he's in the dermatology department, and he is writing amazing stuff about vitamin D as made on the skin. And the fact that we are currently the major dogma in the science literature and in all the internet voices is that there's one storage chemical, 25-OH, there's one enzyme that makes 125-OH, and that's the active chemical, and that's where they stop. Slominski has clearly shown that there are multiple enzymes that act on the original thing that's made on our skin. That means we make a rainbow of types of D. We make 122, 23, 25-OH, and it has a different action. Then we make 2023OH. There's a different hormone that's actually the same hormone that we use to make sex hormones. That hormone is turns out to be active on vitamin D, but no one thought about it. He was the first one to say, wait, this looks just like cholesterol because it used to be cholesterol. I wonder if this enzyme will act on it. Importantly, he not only shows that those enzymes are present in the skin cells, but you can also measure these forms of D in the blood and you can measure that they are having actions on different receptors. There's a thing called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which sounds like it'd be apt to do with aryl hydrocarbons, which are not biologic things. They're like toxins. Well, it was described as that, but that receptor also plays a huge role in inflammation. And it turns out these other forms of D act on that receptor as well. So the, the final answer is, being outdoors is the way our biology was supposed to be. And that is a very difficult message, both in the U.S. and in Australia. And I think to, to walk the middle road, it's important to understand that sunscreen is not bad in and of itself. You Avoid read my mind. That's where yeah. I was going to go next. Yeah. <laughs> sunscreen is not wrong. We are, we are fortunate to have sunscreen. Okay, It's kind of like insect repellents. If you didn't have it, You'd be in a bad pickle, but you can understand that there are reasons why our biology was linked to being outdoors and mm -hmm. that it's really a large array of effects that we're just starting to understand. And then the next question is, okay, what do I do when I'm biohacking? The thing that I like about what happened to me was supplementation is very difficult unless you are fixing something. Okay, you better have an endpoint that you want to achieve. And then if you achieve that endpoint, 
you better have the idea that I'm enter I'm putting a thing in my body that was not naturally there in this sort of a purified form. Okay. In my view, if you have an outcome like better sleep that's constantly there in front of you, I want my sleep to constantly be better. If you don't have anything wrong with your sleep, but you're tired, then I want to feel less fatigue. And now we have trackers so you can look inside your sleep. But you better have something that you're trying to fix. Because if you just take supplements, that is really us puppet, you know, being the puppet master of things we in reality, we don't understand them. They are interconnected in this very complex way. So in the background, it's not wrong to use sunscreen. If you have light skin and it turns out that so many people from the, what is now the UK and other European countries were transplanted in Australia, and the aboriginals of that area had a perfect skin type to fit in that neighborhood. And even within yeah. the aboriginals of Australia, I'll bet you that the ones that were farther south were lighter skins than the ones that were farther north. That's sure. the case in Africa too. Now, well, and th there's another thing. I'm not sure if you've heard um, Jack Cruz talks about it, but he also talks about the idea of a solar callus and that when we're at work and in our homes for five days a week and we only go to the beach for eight hours all of a sudden on the weekend, it's like going to the gym one time for eight hours. You destroy yourself for ages and it's the same with our skin. We haven't developed this solar callus of exposure to strengthen the skin and all of the chemicals in it to withstand the sun. I, I love that phrase. That's really good. I mean, I find Jack Cruz absolutely fascinating and daunting at the same time. <laughs> yes, but, me too. But his recommendations <laughs> are still correct. I think mm -hmm. he's made a few uh, incorrect conclusions about people not being able to bring their D level up when they're in Los Angeles because of uh, radio frequency, et cetera. But I would still say he... He is an out-of-the-box thinker, and he's very, very curious. And all of us, including me, are making up stories to try to answer what, what I saw with my patient. Okay, once you start to see things, and Jack Cruz is very observant, and he is seeing things clinically and trying to explain that, which I really admire him for. So I think this idea, and he also has a lot to say about melanin and, what, and, and his observation that the melanin goes away. You know, you go inside for the rest of the week and then your skin is lighter again. Like what happens to yeah. that melanin? That's a really interesting question. So going back slightly, Slominski started in melanin. He was into melanoma as a study. Melanoma then got him into melanin. Then he actually did a whole series of articles of melatonin, which is not the same thing at all, and realized and is now commonly recognized for those who are interested that it's a hormone that has multiple effects on mitochondria all over the place. It's really not a sleep hormone. And then he went, so he went from melanin, which really isn't exactly a hormone. It's a very unique chemical to a hormone and then to D. And his idea about this is still much like Walter Stump. It's a sun hormone. Why would there be hormones that were related to being exposed to the sun? Well, duh, this is a messaging system that tells you, is there going to be food or not? Every single thing comes from the sun. The other thing I'll say that I like about Jack Cruz is he parallels the chondroblasts and plants and the use of sun to make plants 
this is very, very parallel to us. And to recognize that those things are in parallel, there's some really tragic articles from the 1920s that was the first time that rickets was clearly shown to be lack of sun exposure. So when I give the lectures, I put up this guy, um, Alfred Hess, who is talking to the Pediatric Society of the New York um, Public Health, uh, something like that. And the title of the paper is Rickets Cured by Sunlight Exposure. But his first sentence is, Rickets is the most common nutritional disorder of children. What? How does that fit? So one, there's a very big history, and he concludes his paper with, we've realized that plants need the sun, but we've ignored the fact that children do too. And the tragedy is this is happening to our children. That is exactly the same 100 years later because we put this nutrition label on it, and then medicine mm. stepped away from nutrition, biochemistry, relationship, vitamins, which is crazy. So Yeah. Well, I, th- I find it even like with the generation of medicine that I grew up in and, you know, studied and worked in, to me, it's even wild that you've been able to have a successful career going outside and of the box and going into the nutrition world. Like the world that I see as medicine and, and am aware of is that people that do that are radicals. I was not successful, believe me. My, my colleagues gave me nothing but eye rolls and a lot of mm-hmm. criticism. And, yeah. um, and that was a very important experience for me because then I understood what it feels like to be trying to talk to doctors about things that are so obvious about nutrition and vitamins, et cetera. And they're just like so arrogant. So that was an important experience for me. The only thing that's been successful is I left medicine and I became a sleep coach. And my daughter just said, well, you don't have to have peer review. All you have to do is have a website. And I went, what? Totally. And I can say anything I want. She's like, yeah, they don't have to believe you. Nobody listens to them anyway. They're so arrogant. And so what you're seeing now is a process that's happened over seven or eight years. And also COVID changed everything because now medicine is not going to, you know, get upset about video medicine. It's, it's, It's so changed than even five years ago. And the kind of fear that's behind even our current practitioners are being threatened. I was just threatened by the American Academy of Family Practice by, you know, you can't give continuing medical education credits for anything having to do with vitamin D. In 2020, wow. they gave full CME credit for the courses that I give. 2021, mm-hmm. can't give any credit for anything about vitamin D. D uh, vitamin, I think it was 21 and 22. So by 23, I'm writing to the board of the family practitioner saying, de facto, you are actually censoring information that is in peer-reviewed journals. You are telling your doctors that they are too stupid to be able to learn stuff, and you're closing their views. This is not what your academy was started for. So it's become... Oddly, and I'm not a political person. I, I really don't, you know, I'm just a typical MD, color inside the lines, do what I'm told. 
things have changed dramatically for me. And the great thing is there are people like you who want to listen to this. And now that we're going direct from someone who's read the articles to a layperson, this is an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, I totally agree. And how great is Stasha? She's amazing, right? And also, how incredible is the power of Mother Nature? I mean, it's really just outside your front door and there's so much positive healing and health that can come from getting out there daily, getting your skin in the sun. Because these conversations went really deep, I've chopped this conversation into two parts. And so part two is to be found on episode 303, where we go beyond just vitamin D and go deep into the gut the relationship between vitamin D and the gut and why the Western diet has messed up your microbiome to the point that no matter what you do eat, your body will be struggling to get the right nutrition out of what you put in. And that conversation continues along the sleep theme, but goes far beyond that into other conditions and diseases as well. So it's a must listen to for anyone suffering from, well, pretty much everything. (laughs) Because it's likely vitamin D and your gut play some role in whatever's going on. For now, this is a wrap and we'll see you for the next dose of Dr. Stasha Gominak on episode 303. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.